happens to be someone of Jewish descent who is an economic and uh, a religious uh, figure. And together, in cahoots, they kind of control and dominate the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. So again, the beast out of the sea, sea representing the Gentile population around the Mediterranean Sea in the Middle East. And then, of course, the beast out of the earth representing someone of Jewish descent still coming from a bad place are the two end-time world characters. And I identify the Antichrist as beast number two for some clear reasons. The description given in Revelation chapter 13, verses 9 and onward, of beast number two, beast out of the earth, like a lamb having two horns, does miraculous signs and wonders, directs attention, that is much more fitting to someone who has come as a counterfeit Christ than someone who is a political military dictator. But together, they control everything. So this second beast controls the economy. You don't buy or sell and eat without a mark of the beast, the number being 666, and that's enforced by beast number two or one who has the ability to make war with the saints. So when you don't do what beast number two tells you to do, beast number one steps to the plate and says, well, here's the consequence. So together, they kind of dominate the world. The question that was asked last week, are these two guys known at the beginning of the tribulation period? I don't believe so. I don't believe they're identified as beast number one and beast number two, but they have to be alive. And I happen to think that they are tucked down about that. I happen to believe that uh, beast number one and beast number two are signatories to the peace treaty in Jerusalem. So I think they're on the scene. I think they seize control, uh, but they're signatories to the peace treaty that marks or initiates the seven-year tribulation period. So it's a, again, it's a political, a military treaty that they enter into in the beginning of the tribulation period that promises the safety and security of the nation of Israel on the guarantee that these world powers will protect them militarily and then partway through that tribulation period, they break that treaty, and uh, that's where we want to pick up uh, today. So this beast out of the sea is a Gentile political military dictator, again, in my view and opinion. The beast out of the earth is of Jewish descent. He is an economic and religious dictator drawing attention to the worship of beast number one, because he holds, in essence, all of the power, all the military might and political power uh, that has swallowed up other political leaders of that time. And I believe that swallowing up all takes place three and a half years into the tribulation period. So I want to start this morning, we'll pray, and then we're going to start three and a half years into the tribulation. The treaty has been signed. Israel has reestablished the temple. They are offering daily sacrifices. There's peace and safety. And then something happens that was predicted by the Old Testament prophet, that was reiterated by Jesus himself, 
that comes to fruition halfway through the tribulation period that is a marker point, a mile marker to everything that will happen from that time forward for the period of 1,260 days or exactly three and one half years. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your goodness. I thank You for Your faithfulness to us. We thank You for Your promises. And Father, as we spend some time again in Scripture with so many views out there, I pray that we would just have some clarity as to what we're presenting, uh, that it would be understood and then uh, taken for further study for, for uh, Your people who have gathered this morning. I pray that as we wrestle through these things, we won't hang on to it as being of first importance, but second or tertiary, past importance. Uh, but give us an understanding that in the end of the day, we're not appointed unto wrath, we're spared from the wrath that is to come. There's hope in Christ and the glorious rapture of His church for which we wait with great anticipation even this morning. Encourage us and bless us as we spend some time in Your Word, and we'll thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to take you to a passage of Scripture. You can turn there if you'd like to. You don't have to. Daniel 9.27. And it'll introduce us to the event that takes place halfway through the tribulation period that sets the stage for uh, these two beasts, the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth, to seize control over other political dictators, uh, over other nations. They, they come on in a crisis, a whole political ideology, never let a crisis go to waste. So there's a crisis, and they use that crisis to seize control. Now, what's really interesting, um, just to backtrack a second, again, I believe the tri tribulation countdown starts with this, this peace treaty or peace agreement for the protection of Israel and the acknowledgement of Israel. I find it really interesting what's happening in our world today, the clash between Hamas and Israel and uh, some of even left-leaning politicians. How come they're not accountable for generating uh, hateful actions and anti-Semitic actions, you know? If a Christian speaks out, we're held totally accountable, but, but they're not. That's an aside. But there's a great call throughout our world today for peace in Israel. And for our world today, I would say, be careful what you pray for, because <laughs> that peace in Israel comes with a cost. And everything might look great for three and a half years, but literally, and I use this phrase because it is from the Scripture, um, not succinctly, all hell will break loose. Demonic cords will be released. Hell will open up, and the, these evil spirits will begin to torment like you can't even imagine three and a half years into the tribulation period. So, what event is it that marks that three and a half year waypoint that gives rise to these end time rulers and, and, and dictators and thrusts us into the great tribulation or the time of great tribulation, not just tribulation, but great tribulation? Uh, and, and I'll identify that in a minute. What I will say is it's still the tribulation. The church is gone. That salt and light has been removed. The one who hinders is no longer hindering. We're, we're in heaven with God. This notion that everything's going to be peachy in the first half of the tribulation period is a false notion. It's not going to be peachy. It's going to be a world without the influence of Christianity. 
It's going to be the world uh, that no longer has the church as this restrainer of evil. And evil will be more pronounced and run more rampant throughout the tribulation period, not just three and a half years into it, but three and a half years into it, I'll share with you what my belief is, it's going to become exponentially worse. What makes it exponentially worse? In the book of Daniel, in his prophecy, he prophesies that he, meaning this, this willful king, if you would, this uh, beast out of the sea and beast out of the earth working in tandem, will make a strong covenant with many for one week. They, they sign their signatures to this, this covenant, and for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and suffering. So halfway through this, after the treaty has been signed, the temple is restored, Israel is given freedom to, to exist, to be protected militarily, to be able to, to practice their faith. Halfway through, he's going to put an end to that sacrifice and an end to that offering. He's going to replace that with something different. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. So it is willful king, beast out of the sea, political military dictator who says in a military crisis, no more does Israel have the freedom, we're going to break this treaty. Someone else comes along who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Another person comes and what, what we would call uh, initiates the abomination that causes desolation or the abomination of desolation. It's not just the breaking of the treaty, it is beast number two, beast out of the earth, who comes along and in place of the Jewish celebration in the temple causes that to cease, military dictator number one, and the second one comes along and places an image in God's temple and makes everybody worship that image, and that image is probably a beast number one directing worship. That is the Antichrist. So the Antichrist and this, this Roman prince together break the covenant, and this religious leader sets a statue, an idol, in the temple in Jerusalem and makes everybody worship it and get a mark of the beast to indicate that you are worshiping that beast or you can't buy or sell. And when you don't get that mark, it is beast number one, that military political dictator who brings about the havoc, because the Bible says in Revelation chapter 13, he has the ability to make war against the saints. So they're working together, but the image is placed by beast number two, but it is probably an image of beast number one. They break the covenant that's probably a result of a military conflict that we read about in Daniel chapter 10. Um, We'll look at that perhaps at another time. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 15. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. When this abomination takes place, know that something really bad is going to take place. Take, take note of that. There's going to be a shift and a turn and a wrath that comes at such a time and historically, some had believed this to be historically fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 B.C. The problem is that Antiochus Epiphanes, although he desecrates the temple, never entered into a peace treaty or compact with Israel. So, even if it was a partial fulfillment, it's not a total fulfillment. There was never any covenant with Israel. 
He just came and, and, and desecrated the temple. It seems to be that even Jesus then is, is looking forward that this is something in the future, and then, of course, we would know that it is three and a half years through the tribulation period. I don't think you can squeeze any kind of historic fulfillment into the context. The best you can do is, is, is kind of make it at least a partial fulfillment. So, for those who are watching and, and, and recognizing three and a half years into the tribulation, this abomination that makes desolate, this breaking of the treaty, the seizing of control in Revelation 13 of the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth introduces the worst of the great tribulation and its consequences and prepares the world for the return of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's imminent, and that's why Jesus says, be always on the watch. Pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen. Now, remember, in that context, He's talking to Israel. I'm talking to the church. He's talking to Israel, all right? And that's a really important entity. So, this abomination of, of desolation has to do with Israel, not the church. And that means that it's a breach of this covenant that was made with many halfway or at the, at the initiating uh, uh, days of that tribulation period. So, halfway through, there's this abomination of desolation that takes place. Worship in the temple is now directed at beast out of the sea, beast number one. It is an idolatrous kind of worship. It uh, further uh, reduces God's influence or perhaps enhances his influence as he begins to pour out his wrath in the final three and a half years of the tribulation for this desecration in the temple and the ultimate denial of, of the God of all creation. While that's taking place, or just prior to that taking place, we read about a, a group of people in, in, uh, in Revelation chapter 7. If you go to Revelation chapter 7, you will find yourself introduced to a group of people uh, called the 144,000 of Israel who were sealed. When we look at the ministry of the tribulation period, God is not done. We will find numerous times, both in heaven and on earth, multitudes, as many as the sand and the sea, celebrating their faith and God through Christ Jesus. People will get rescued. They will come to salvation in the tribulation period. The consequences will be grave. The consequences will be far greater than any other time in history, but God is not done rescuing the souls of men. If you want to debate that, what you can't debate is He at least rescues the souls of 144,000 Jews. How do I know that? Because if these 144,000 Jews got saved before the rapture, guess what? They would have been part of the church and gone with the rapture, but they're not. Somehow, God miraculously unblinds their eyes after the rapture of the church. He brings them to salvation. He seals them, and He sends them out with the message of the kingdom. And they are to go out and preach the message of the kingdom that included the gospel. The message of the kingdom included the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it was a message of the imminent return of Christ to set up His kingdom. That's why we call it the message of the kingdom. It's not another gospel. It's still rooted in Christ alone, but it is now the message of the kingdom, not a message of the rapture of the church, not a message of the closing of the church age. It is a message of, of, of the kingdom. Things are getting bad. God is coming soon. Prepare the way 
of the Lord. And for throughout the tribulation period, there are some who believe that some of these 144,000 are martyred, so God stops protecting them. That's a hard case to make. I, I think a case can be made, but it's a hard case to make. I believe that God protects most of those 144,000, if not all of them. Throughout all seven years, God miraculously protects them, and they are His remnant that preaches the gospel of the kingdom constantly and forthrightly for the whole tribulation period. And many people respond to that gospel of the kingdom and come to salvation in Christ alone. That gospel must include the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you go a few chapters ahead, though, in Romans, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 11, you will see in verse 1, that I was given a measuring rod like a staff, And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple, leave them out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. That is the abomination of desolation. So 42 months in, three and a half years, they will trample that holy city. They will cause the sacrifice to cease. They will turn against Israel. And I will grant authority, verse 3, Forty-two months in, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Their message is a little bit different than the 144,000 Jews. They are not sent to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and the coming of the kingdom. They're clothed in sackcloth and ashes. Their message is a message of imminent judgment. They are saying, God is, God's judgment is upon you. God's judgment is coming. God's judgment is here. You can imagine how popular that message is halfway through the tribulation period. Not real popular at all. I'm not saying they don't preach the message of the gospel, but they are here to preach a message of judgment. The 144,000 preach the positive message of the kingdom. But the full message of the Scriptures, both Old and New Testament, is you have to talk about the bad, and you have to talk about the ultimate good. You can't talk about salvation without talking about sin. So together, they talk about the hope of the coming kingdom and the ultimate judgment of God in these final three and a half years, 1,260 days of the tribulation. We know that their message is a message of judgment because of how they're clothed. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Verse 4, and if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. And they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophecy. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, this is a different beast altogether, will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. This is Satan himself. And when he kills them, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified, identified that city is Jerusalem. And for three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb, albeit as an example 
that there is no God to protect, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, and they will make merry and exchange presents. Can you imagine? They're going to party over the killing of these, these witnesses that God has ordained for their good, because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on earth. No kidding. <laughs> Repent or the judgment of God is upon you is not a popular message. They're a thorn in the side of those who have rejected the God of all of the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God enters them, and they stood on their feet. Could you imagine? They had a party. There's a parade. These guys stand up, and great fear fell on all of those who saw them. I can imagine. I can imagine. Kind of like Lazarus. Don't let him out. He stinks. He's been dead in the street for three and a half days. Much has been made about the numbers. Much has been made about could it be. Some people will even preach to you that this is Moses and Elijah. I don't, I don't believe any of that is true. These are ordained prophets, if you would, of God, who are prophesying of the imminent judgment of God. Well, the 144,000 prophesy about the coming of the kingdom in a positive way. Both of their messages are not well championed, but God has protected the 144,000. And for some reason, He allows these two witnesses to lose their life, only to resurrect them from the dead. This is really interesting to me. Um, is this to counter… Is this the counter, the resurrection of beast number one by beast number two when he did his magic and, 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 and this idol seemed to speak words? I, I don't know, but I find it very interesting. These two witnesses counter the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth, and they tell the truth. They tell the truth. They're killed for it. God raises them from the dead. And then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up into a cloud, and their enemies Watch them. The language going, going up in a cloud, uh, the, you know, the language talking about uh, power to shut the sky. That's why some people believe it to be Elijah, uh, because he never experienced death. Remember, it's a point another man wants to die. But when they say Elijah, Moses, it breaks down because Moses did die. He was buried on the mount, all right? Um, so we, we don't know who it is, and, and I'm not sure that it, it warrants us to dig down that deep to figure it out. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God in heaven. Oh, by the way, they may have given glory to God in heaven, but they didn't repent. We find some horrific things in the book of the Revelation. One of the most horrific for me, uh, and there are several horrific things, and one of the most horrific things to contemplate is the deep depth of depravity of, of people without God. Do you know in the millennial kingdom, a kingdom of peace where Jesus sits on His throne, at the end of that kingdom, myriads and myriads of those people reject the very God who has overseen and, and sat on the throne over them for that 1,000 years? Even in a time where they can see the goodness of the Lord, their wickedness is so great, they still reject it. And Satan is loose from the bottomless pit, and, and he leads this, this revolt against the king who is sitting on the throne. Don't ever underestimate or minimize sin and its ugliness in the eyes of a holy God. That's exactly what Peter was trying to communicate. It's reflected on Genesis 
chapter 6. There's some grave things happening, yet God is using these witnesses for His glory. While all of this is taking place, the Bible then in the book of the Revelation begins to introduce us to a series of judgments, uh, three sets of, of seven kinds of, of judgments. It's the trumpet, or it's the, the seal judgments, it's the trumpet judgments, and then the bowl or the vial judgments. Lest we get tripped over this, some be, people believe that these judgments are, are, are simultaneous and kind of intermingle. Uh, the majority of opinion is they go successively through the seal judgments, all seven, then they get to the trumpet judgments, all seven, and then they get to the bowl or vial judgments, all seven. And then, of course, it, it results in, in the, the return of Christ to establish and set up His millennial kingdom. Whether they're happening simultaneously or happening individually, which, which I believe is probably a better translation, they're, they're sequential in nature. There's some really bad things that happen as these judgments are poured out. And remember, these judgments get worse and worse and worse towards the latter portion of the tribulation period after 1,260 days, the last three and a half years. If we could do this rather quickly, let's first take a look at some of the sealed judgments. If you take your Bibles and look at Revelation chapter 6, Revelation chapter 6. And we won't have the time to get into all of these in, in any kind of depth, but uh, it, here's a funny thing about the seal judgments, and it, it's not funny. The seal judgments, uh, all seven of them, there seems to be general consensus of what they are. When you get into the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, the uh, opinions are all over the place as to what they represent and what's really happening. But there seems to be a general consensus in each of these first seven sealed judgments as to what they indicate in the course and in the context of the tribulation period. I happen to believe that uh, the, the sealed judgments fit better in the first half of the tribulation period. And at the end of the, the sealed judgments, just prior to the trumpet and the vile judgments, I believe they take place in the second half of the tribulation period. Now, I'll, I'll explain quickly as we go along why I believe that. So, we'll turn our attention to Revelation chapter 6 and talk about the judgments of the tribulation period. Make no mistake about it, the tribulation is all about judgment. It is about the consummation of, of the evil in the world before Genesis 3, God sends a flood and destroys the wicked ones and rescues the righteous. Uh, he is preparing the world for His coming, the execution of the unrighteous, and the ultimate blessing in the righteous. Now, I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. As we look at that, uh, that, that, that judgment, um, some would say, well, you know, uh, perhaps this is an indication of the rapture of the church. So, the first uh, uh, seal judgment in verse 2, and I looked, and behold, a white horse. That must be Jesus. I don't think so. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. There is relative consensus that this is indicative in the early tribulation period, this rider on the white horse has a sense of peace. There's a seizing of control. There's a quietness of the world. I believe it's a direct result of the chaos that comes after the rapture of the church. Interesting aside, 
If you've been watching the news about UFOs, and uh, maybe they're real. After all, oh, wow, you know, are they beginning to build? Is, is the evil one beginning to build a, a reasonable justification for all of these people in the world disappearing? It must be the UFOs. They're, they're real after all. I just find that kind of fascinating. Maybe it has nothing to do with it, but I don't know about you. My mind kind of thinks that way. How are they ever going to come up with something to give an account of all these people who disappeared? Well, they're going to do something, but, but this disappearance is going to cause this peace. Hey, th- this is chaos. The world's in chaos. Every, nobody knows what's going on. So there's a peace that comes with so this rider on the white horse, a white horse indicating peace. And, and possibly, I, I believe that it does, it, it's in reference to this covenant that is made with Israel for the last three and a half, or the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. Again, we're not going to spend a lot of time getting bogged down here. There seems to be some consensus that the white horse indicates a time of peace, which is absolutely fitting to Daniel's prophecy. There's a time of peace. There's a covenant signed, and Israel is able to, to get back to some sense of normalcy. It says in Revelation 6, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red, the rider, its rider, was permitted to take peace from the earth so the people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. Is this an introduction to uh, some kind of world conflict? Again, commentators seem to think that this rider on the, on the red horse, and it's clear from the Scripture, indicates a time of war. So, what, what kind of war is taking place? Real quickly, without getting bogged down, go to Go to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. Now, in Daniel chapter 9, we're told about the abomination that makes desolation, uh, the desolator being the one who erects a, a statue of worship, an idol in the temple. And, and Daniel chapter 11 is a both historic and future reference uh, to things that take place in the context of the world as we know it. In verse 36, and I believe this has to do with um, the, the, the tribulation period, we find a military conflict. Verse 36, and the king shall do as he wills. And this willful king perhaps is the first beast in Revelation chapter 13 who has the ability to make war against the saints and, 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 and kind of introduces some kind of conflict or resolves some kind of conflict he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. So, he is magnified and exalted not by self, but by beast number two, if our understanding of Revelation 13 is in order. He shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, till the end of that tribulation period, and what is decreed shall be done. And he shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall pay no attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above God. This is that two-headed beast out of the earth and sea that are mentioned in Revelation chapter 13, working together. He shall honor the god of fortresses, the god of war, if you would, instead of these, a god whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver and precious stones and costly gifts. And he shall deal with the strongest forces with the help of a foreign God. And that's a really interesting statement. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him 
shall load with honor, he shall make them rulers over many, and shall divide the land for a price. There's a military conflict. This guy is seizing control. He's, he's doling out privileges based on whether you are with him or against him. Verse 40, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. The king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. Here's what's happening. So, at this particular time, in this particular military conflict in Daniel chapter 11, maybe it fits this, this second sealed judgment. So, there's this treaty in Israel, and uh, not everyone's happy with it. You can imagine some of the Arab states are not at all thrilled with Israel being given permission to live in existence and, and, and begin the sacrifice. So, what the Bible tells us is there's a kings out of the south who don't like this arrangement, and they begin to march in the land of Palestine or towards, towards Jerusalem. And word gets out that they're marching towards Jerusalem, so there are tidings out of the north now. Northern armies don't want to give the southern armies a leg up. They don't want them to be in charge. So they begin to come down out of the north, converging on the nation of Israel and the land of Palestine. The Scriptures tell us, and he shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of hand, Edom and Moab, and the main part of the Ammonites. There's some really interesting language there that talks about Arab states and, and uh, North African kind of states. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become the ruler of the treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites, and shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. He kind of seized political military control, this Middle East kind of place. The armies of the south aren't happy. They want to take the control from him. The armies of the north, Gog and Magog, remember those prophecies in Ezekiel, probably Russian kind of era, they're coming down out of the north, and then they hear the eastern armies aren't real happy about this either. And that would represent what we would know to be China. There have always been consistent uh, countries in, in eschatology and the fulfillment of eschatology, and they're all coming to this place of, of Jerusalem. And now this this, this king, this Antichrist and, and, and Roman prince, this two-headed beast who have kind of taken over, are a little bit concerned about the fury and destruction to come, and the armies of the north will pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. He shall come to his end, and none will help him. To stay off this military clash and conflict, the armies of the north amassed outside of the land of Palestine and Jerusalem will be done away with without hand. God's not going to use another army. In fact, the text tells us earlier on that there's another God, a foreign God, who's going to come in and intervene. I believe that God destroys the armies of the north and stays off this, this battle, we often call it Armageddon or Megiddo, because it's, the timing's not right. So, he, he handles that situation, this foreign God to these two end-time beasts. I, I just find it rather interesting. Is that exactly how it'll play out? No, but it just seems to, to fit the context. All of that to say, beast number one, or excuse me, 
Uh, seal judgment number one is the signing of the treaty. Seal judgment number two is, is the empowerment to make war and, and this potential brooding conflict in the land of Palestine. Back to the book of the Revelation, uh, chapter 5, and he opened the third seal. And the third living creature said, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And his rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for Daenerys, and three quarts of barley for Daenerys. Do not harm the oil and the water. It is relatively agreed on that this third seal judgment has to do with worldwide famine. The rider on the black horse represents a famine that overtakes place in this land, particularly and and maybe potentially because of this conflict and war that is taking place, but it represents a famine. Verse 7, And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of all the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence, and by the wild beasts out of the earth. This rider on this pale horse represents death, and one quarter of the earth, one quarter of the earth by sword and famine and pestilence comes to their destruction. You understand that? One quarter. The tribulation period, even in the first to beginning portion, is not a time of peace and prosperity and plenty. God is judging the world. God is making Himself known. There's a preaching of the kingdom of Christ coming, the coming of the kingdom and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But death prevails. Verse 9, and He opened the fifth seal, and I saw on the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the Word of God and for the witness that had been born. Remember, it is beast number one who makes war against the saints. Now he's talking about those who have come to know Christ. They've accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ and the coming of the kingdom, and somebody makes war against them and, and, and kills them for the witness that they had borne, for the Word of God. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer, and the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete or to be killed as they themselves had been. seems to indicate that this fifth seal judgment is a martyrdom on those who have listened and, and accepted the message of the kingdom. There's a price to be paid, and they're killed for choosing God over these end-time beasts, perhaps even rejecting this abomination that makes desolate. Verse 12, and he opened a sixth seal, and I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. This this celestial disturbance, this earthly and celestial disturbance, and the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and every one slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountain, calling 
the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand it? This sixth seal and this celestial disturbances creates grave fear on those inhabiting the land of Palestine. I, I believe that many of these prophecies are worldwide. They're not just focused on Palestine. Although that's centralized in these prophecies, it impacts the whole world as we know it. And rather than repent, they hide themselves from the God who is creating these celestial disturbances. It's almost as if they're shaking their fist at Him. And then for seal number seven, Look at chapter 8, verse 1. To me, this is one of the most intimidating verses in all of the New Testaments. And when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And here's what just took place the mountains were shaking. The islands are displaced. There's this massive earthquake, a celestial disturbance. There's a fear of God that comes over the people, but it doesn't lead to repentance because they don't repent and just hide themselves from God, living in defiance. The seventh seal is open, and there's silence in heaven for the space of one and a half hour. Now, can you imagine? If I just stopped talking for half an hour, we just all kind of sat here contemplating what we just saw and what just happened. There's silence in heaven, though, for the space of a half an hour. The holy angels serving the God of all creation, the church gathered in the rapture, all things in the heaven understand that from this day forward, all hell is going to break loose, and these, these judgments are going to get so, so much worse. They understand the extent of destruction. Can you imagine in heaven? Silence. Silence for the space of one half hour. That's intimidating. overwhelming to me. No matter how bad a picture I paint of these end-time judgments, I can't paint a more grievous picture than that in anticipation of the full wrath of God being poured out on all mankind. In anticipation of that, everything in heaven goes silent for a half an hour. You don't buy it. When people say, yeah, I want to go to hell. That's where all my friends are. Don't buy it for a second. Don't buy it when people say, oh, yeah, the first half of the tribulation, no big deal. Don't buy it for a second. It is a big deal. But now that we're through the first three and a half years, things go from bad to more worse than you can even imagine. And in anticipation of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. That's the language that is used in the Scripture. There's silence in heaven 
for half an hour. Men, women, and children will be thrust into hell for the rest of eternity. God will take vengeance in a way that He's never taken vengeance, open, visible kind of way. Those who have shaken their fist and hidden the rocks rather than call Him both Lord and God will experience the full fury of the Creator of heaven and earth. Now, let me ask you a question. How can you read that and not get a sense for the urgency of preaching the gospel to every creature? How can you hear something like that and not be reminded of people who you know who will experience that first three and a half years, let alone the the next three and a half, because they're without Christ. How much is that going to change how we live when we read that even in heaven, this is such an overwhelming thought that everything goes silent for a year? Again, our goal is not to figure out all of these mysteries. Our goal is to be motivated to live godly lives in an evil age. Our motive is to preach the gospel to every creature because the end is soon upon us. And our motive is to make sure that there's nothing in our lives that get in the way of the message of that gospel. God cleanses from the inside out and let, let nothing in our lives get in the way of that gospel because a time of judgment is coming. Maybe it's just me. I believe it's one of the most intimidating verses in the New Testament. There was silence in heaven for the space of one half hour before all hell is released from these demonic forces and we we see the unfolding of the trumpet and the bold judgments. May God find us faithful to the end, proclaiming the truth that some might be saved. But may God also give us an impending doom a sense of impending doom for how much God hates sin, despises it. Let's not take that so lightly. Just like our pastors this morning, sometimes we tend to, well, you know, just human. No, you are rescued by the blood of the Lamb. He expects more of you. Let's take that serious. The fullness of the fierce of the wrath of Almighty God is about to be poured out, and there's silence in heaven for the space of half an hour. Be comforted that we're not here. But in your spirit, be grieved and moved to do something about those that you know who will be. And may we live soberly and righteous in this present age for His glory. Father, serious matters. Ugly sin. absolute holiness and righteousness. Something has to give, and give it does after the silence in heaven for the space of half an hour. Father, in some way, use that to change our minds, purify our lives, and give us a sense of urgency that the time is running short as we wait for the great God and appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Find us us faithful. For your glory alone, and remind us that we are righteous only because 
you are righteous. And comfort us with the gospel. Bless us as we continue our study next week. We move away from our curiosity. May you give us a glimpse of reality. God, help us through Jesus Christ alone, I pray. Amen. Thank you.